It's good to see you. I'm glad you've come out on this nice Sunday evening. It's nice and cool outside. It's not too bad. Uh, I think Nathan is turning on the mic or something back there. Um, but it's good to see you. It's good to be with you. It's a shame we have to leave so soon. We have to leave tomorrow. But I look forward to being with you soon, full time, and <laughs> every week, and not having weeks in between when I can visit and be here. So I'm looking very much forward to that. Uh, but I hope you'll be in prayer for us as we transition and prepare to make the move and all those types of things. We are swimming in boxes right now, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Um, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I mentioned this morning that there were certain passages of the Bible that kind of stood out more than others. And we talked about one this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. And there were some other ch uh, chapters that I mentioned that perhaps stood out to you as um, you perhaps read the Word and study the Word. And for me, John chapter 3 is one of those chapters. It's a infamous chapter, mostly infamous for verse 16, of course. It's uh, a famous verse. It's perhaps the first verse that you memorized uh, when you became a Christian. I don't know. I know it was for me. Um, it's famous, too, for people like Tim Tebow, who, Tim Tebow, who write John 3.16 on their eye black and their eyes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just look up Tim Tebow and you'll remember what I'm talking about. But it's a famous chapter, and it's so famous that even people who are not in the church know about John chapter 3. And such um, that, and because of that fact, I should say, I think it's be kind of become sort of uh, colloquial to the point where we don't often remember what is going on in the chapter. We just remember John 3.16. But I think we kind of do the, this narrative a disservice by remembering just that verse. Um, I gave a kind of a brief overview of this chapter on Wednesday in terms of what Jesus is doing with his discussion with uh, Nicodemus. Um, and what he's doing is he's always turning Nicodemus back to the Bible in his questions that he has for Jesus. So I kind of gave a bro brief overview of that conversation, but what I really want to do tonight is look at the life of Nicodemus as seen in the scriptures, because um, as we will find in a minute, it's interesting how this discussion ends. So really quickly, I'm going to look at first uh, the first couple of verses of John chapter 3. I'm just going to read them, and we'll kind of walk through quickly. Uh, because first, we, uh, the first point I want you to see is here in, in this chapter, John chapter 3, we have an image or a picture of, of Nicodemus questioning Jesus. Look there at verse 1 where it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher. Come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes to him by night. But I think, uh, I think Nicodemus is coming with a right heart. I don't think Nicodemus is trying to set a trap like most of the Pharisees do with Jesus. Whenever you see usual, usual conversations between the Pharisees and Jesus, especially in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, most of the times the Pharisees were trying to set Jesus up in order to trick him into uh, counteracting the law in order to be like, 
like, aha, we got you. I don't think that's what Nicodemus is doing. I think he is actually coming here with a genuinely uh, curious heart in mind. I think he's genuinely wanting to know about this man, Jesus from Galilee, who is making a name for himself and gaining kind of a following. And I don't think he's I don't think he's coming with an agenda, but it is curious that John mentions that he comes to Jesus by night. Of course, um, we might know that Nicodemus um, is a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a well-respected sort of religious tribunal body that was active during the first century. He was a member of this body who was uh, prestigious and he had a lot of authority and power. And he was also a Pharisee. So Nicodemus is a well-respected man in the community. So I think obviously this detail that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night is sort of suggestive of the shame that Nicodemus has in trying to find out more about this Jesus. He is not wanting to be mocked by his friends or ridiculed by his peers or, 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 or made fun of perhaps for speaking honestly and openly with this Jesus guy who was making such a ruckus in the area. But I also think that it's indicative of Nicodemus's own spiritual blindness. Uh, throughout the Gospel of John, there's some, a couple of places you can go to in John chapter 9 and 11 and 13, which we won't go there tonight. But you can see places where John, the apostle, is using darkness or night to uh, it, it sort, of, sort of suggest spiritual darkness. He's using it as sort of a metaphor, and I think it's, that's kind of evident throughout this conversation where Nicodemus is questioning Jesus about his teachings, talking to him about the new birth, and Nicodemus keeps saying, Lord, how can these things be? He keeps coming up confused, keeps coming up um, sort of bewildered by Jesus' teachings. Jesus, I love how, though, again, how Jesus answers all of his questions. He doesn't uh, get frustrated by Nicodemus. He doesn't become perturbed by these constant questioning and uh, his constant answer of, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. But I love in verse 10 or verse 9, if you look, he's asked these questions about the new birth. Jesus has talked to him about how this new birth is coming through water and through spirit. It's going to be totally different than what you think, Nicodemus. And then Nicodemus in verse 9 says again, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? He's still perplexed by what Jesus is talking about. And I love how Jesus answers. He says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? <laughs> he's throwing Nicodemus' uh, occupation back at him. And he's saying, you are a Pharisee. You're a master of the history of Israel. And you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know what I'm trying to say. And that's where he gets into. And if you jump down to verse 16, where he really reveals the mind and heart of God the Father. Those famous verses that we know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
So he's revealing this gospel of salvation and he's talking about this new birth and he's talking about the covenants and all these sorts of things and he's talking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking him questions and then look at verse 21. This is the end of their, at least their recorded conversation. Jesus says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And then we see very quickly that Nicodemus repented of his sins, and he came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Right? No. We don't know what happened to Nicodemus. I always find that fascinating. John, the apostle, records for us in the next phrase, after these things came Jesus' disciples into the land of Judea. He immediately switches scenes. Almost, it feels like mid-conversation. It feels strange to me that in this conversation between this Pharisee and this teacher, Jesus of Galilee, he stops and switches scenes. Because I've always wondered what happened after that conversation. What happened to Nicodemus? I have to imagine that he was changed in some way through the course of their conversation. I have to imagine that he went home just constantly thinking and wrestling about these things, about this new birth, this second birth from the water and the spirit of God. And that this God is, is this Jesus and he is here. He is the God man in the flesh and Jesus is telling him all these things and it says Actually, it doesn't say anything about what Nicodemus did afterwards. And that's where we have to turn to John chapter 7. Because in the life of Nicodemus, at least as recorded for us in the scriptures, the next time Nicodemus appears in the narrative of scripture is John chapter 7. If you're in, so we have in John 3, Nicodemus is questioning Jesus. And here, I think you'll see, I like to call this the part where Nicodemus defends Jesus, kind of, because he kind of defends Jesus. He doesn't really go out of his way to defend him, but he kind of does. Look at verse 32, John 7. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, that is, oh, I just closed my Bible, concerning him, that is, concerning Jesus. Let me get back to my spot. Concerning this Jesus and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So the Pharisees are frustrated. They hear this uproar kind of starting that Jesus is, again, gaining a following. And so they send officers. They, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they uh, make plans to arrest Jesus. They want to uh, get him off the scene, so to speak. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and, I shall, and ye shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. And so Jesus is talking to them, and he bewilders them down through verse 39. Uh, about his resurrection and such. He's talking to them about things that go beyond their capacity to know. And then the people then are divided. Look at verse 40. They get divided and then they start arguing about, what this, about who this man is. Many of the people, it says in verse 30, or excuse me, 40. Therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh out of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. 
And they didn't know what to do with him. They're arguing of here, of course, who this guy is. He's making all these claims. He's doing all these things. And he's doing them in Yahweh's name. And so we kind of want him to get off the scene. But he's also really fascinating. He's a well-spoken man. And yet we just don't know what to do with this guy, this man from Galilee. And then in verse 44, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. They're not really sure they want to touch him because he is so powerful. And that's where we get to verse 45. So we have that kind of setup. The officers, the ones who were charged to arrest him back in verse 32, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? So they're frustrated. Why didn't you arrest him like we told you to? Then the officers answered, Never a man spake like this man. Jesus' words were so powerful and influential and bewildering that they didn't take him in. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? The Pharisees are now uh, jabbing at these officers. Have you been fooled too by this Galilean's teaching? Have you been fooled by Jesus' words Then verse 48, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. So they're frustrated again by Jesus' teaching. And then look who stands up. Verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? See, he's standing up and he is actually trying to fight for the, 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 the due process of the law. He's not wanting to get rid of his position and his reputation, even as his comrades here are trying to conspire that anyone who follows this, this Galilean teacher is cursed. He stands up and says, we can't really go out and just arrest him. Because he's not really doing anything wrong. We have to follow the law. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him? We have to give him a trial. So he's, he's kind of defending Jesus. He's, he's not coming out and saying that he's a bad dude. And that he should be cursed. And that you shouldn't follow him. But he's also not. He's trying to protect his reputation. He's trying to protect his, his position. He's a member of this body who is conspiring against Jesus. And here he is. He's saying, uh, let's not get hasty. Let's let the law follow its process. And let's see what Jesus has to say for himself. Let's not just rely on other people's opinions of who this Jesus guy is. And look how they answered him. Verse 52. They answered and said unto him, art thou also of Galilee? Are you one of his followers too? Have you been fooled too? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. I love how sort of racist they are about this Jesus guy. No one can come out of Galilee. No one comes out of there. No one smart or good comes out of that language or that, that town, that position. His suggestion is quickly discarded as quickly as it comes out of Nicodemus' mouth. And he's ridiculed for even suggesting it. Even for even suggesting that they follow the law that these guys are supposed to be upholding. And so I think what I see here, even in Nicodemus kind of defending Jesus, is just his silence, which speaks volumes. 
His silence is actually speaking for him. And I think this sort of mockery of Nicodemus in such public fashion sort of shoves him to the shadows. Because, again, we don't really hear much about Nicodemus, again, in our Bibles after this point. Except for one more time. One more instance. Turn with me to John chapter 19. This, of course is right after the crucifixion narrative in the Gospel of John. Jesus has died, and he is on the cross still, but Joseph of Arimathea comes, and he wants to take his body and give it a proper burial. Look at verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, make note of that phrase, But secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight." I find that so fascinating that this Joseph of Arimathea, he comes, he's quote unquote a secret disciple of Jesus. And he comes to embalm and entomb the Lord out of a sign of respect and reverence and honor. Joseph here, as we see, his reputation is known to us as well. He's a secret disciple. He hasn't come out, so to speak, in his faith. He has been one who has been serving Jesus, perhaps in the shadows, not in the spotlight. And he's coming now to sort of say, I want to honor this Jesus in his broken and lifeless body. And also is here Nicodemus. The same Nicodemus who questioned Jesus. The same Nicodemus who half-heartedly kind of sort of defended Jesus. Is now here at the last reverencing Jesus. He's honoring Jesus' body. That's what it means there, I, or I think that's how, what we can see there when it says that this same Nicodemus brought a mixture of ur and aloes about an hundred pound weight. Basically that's saying he brought enough embalming spices for roughly 200 bodies. If we can't look at that and see the fact that Nicodemus is broken... He's broken by the fact that this guy he had spent an evening with, and perhaps many other evenings that we don't know about in conversation, is now here trying to do his best to get rid of the guilt, perhaps, that he feels for not living for Jesus, but secretly. That phrase there that describes Joseph of Arimathea, I think is, without a doubt, a fitting description of Nicodemus as well. He was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was what we could say a confidential Christian. Throughout his life, he was more concerned perhaps with the loss of reputation, with with the loss of prestige, with the loss of position, more than in his confession of Christ as his Lord. He didn't want to come out and say, I'm with that guy from Galilee because he knew what it meant that it might do to him, perhaps his family, perhaps all of those that were uh, associated with him. 
But now, what he was once cowering away from under the cover of night, he is now openly honoring and aligning himself in broad daylight. He is reverencing Jesus. Look again, verse 39. And there also came Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And the garden was, uh, excuse me, in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There lay, they laid Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. He's honoring Jesus. He's reverencing the body of this Lord. And he's going above and beyond the call of embalming this body. Because I think, again, I think, I can only imagine the amount of guilt, perhaps, that he felt. The same ruling body, the same Sanhedrin council that conspired to have Jesus murdered in the most humiliating way possible is now having two of its members uh, honor the same body that they had conspired to be murdered in the most reverential way possible. I think that's so fascinating. Obviously, the sight of this cross shamed Nicodemus. And stung him perhaps into courage. Historical tradition. This is not scriptural. It's based into the tradition of the church and history. Says to us that Nicodemus was later martyred in service of the gospel. You can read about Nicodemus' life. It is believed that he was baptized by Peter and John later in the days of the early days of the church. He was, is believed that he was kicked off the Sanhedrin and that he was baptized by the apostles and he later died in the first century as a missionary in the service of Jesus Christ preaching the gospel. And yet, I think what's fascinating to us is that we have none of that recorded and yet all that we know about Nicodemus, every single time his name mentioned, what occurs is the description that he came to Jesus by night. All we know from our Bibles, all that's remembered for all of eternity about Nicodemus is the fact that he came and questioned Jesus and that he did not live in, this, in the sunshine, we might say, for his Lord and Jesus Christ. I think this story, this tale of Nicodemus' life, it's tragic, yes, but I think it's also one that serves to stir our own faith. I know it does for me because uh, it, it should actually stir us from a shrinking faith to serving Jesus, not secretly, but openly. I think Nicodemus feared, again, that ridicule, that loss of rank, that loss of position, that idea of being outcast for his faith. And I wonder how often in the days after the crucifixion that he wrestled and had sleepless nights thinking about his conversations and thinking about the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and wishing that he could go back and change those conversations. Change those times when he could have made an impact on his peers for the Lord Jesus. Wishing that he could go back and think about the words that he could have said and perhaps should have said. I think very clearly 
from Nicodemus's life, we have this charge, which is don't serve Jesus in secret. Don't be described right here, as it says, as a disciple, but secretly. Don't play around with the gospel while trying to uphold your reputation. And don't fear man's words more than God's words. And don't cling to this life which is temporary more than your eternal one. And don't be afraid to lose everything and yet gain Christ. Jesus even says this. Again, we have those great words from Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, where he says this very thing. Mark 8, 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For Nicodemus, he exchanged his reputation. For Nicodemus, he wanted to protect his position, protect perhaps the things that went along and the benefits that came, the perks that came with being a Pharisee, a well-respected, well-known member of society. And yet the gospel gives us the freedom to disregard our reputations and to live bold lives in Jesus' name. The gospel gives us the courage to confess this Christ in our daily lives. As we are going about and going all here, there, and yon, we can confess Christ in our daily lives without fear of having to lose our reputation because our reputation isn't out in the world. Our reputation is with Jesus Christ. He has given us a new reputation, one that in his eyes, is, there is therefore now no condemnation because we have that righteousness of God himself. We can hold all things loosely save for the cross because the cross has given us everything. In fact, I love this, this line from the commentator Alexander McLaren. He says, the sight of Christ's cross not only leads to courage and kindles a love which demands expression, but it impels joyful surrender. And in the life of Nicodemus, we can learn from it. We can learn that very thing. Just like Nicodemus, as we know and perhaps believe, that the sight of the cross sort of stung him into courage and perhaps impelled him to a life of surrender, so too should we have the same view of the cross and the same joyful surrender to a life of the cross. Such is why it's necessary, I think, to uphold Christ crucified in our hearts and minds every single time the word is opened to us. Because just like Nicodemus, I fear and I feel, I know for me, I can speak for myself. Oftentimes, we'd want to uphold what other people think about us above what Jesus has said about us. We're worried about what man will say, what our friends say. I think about back to my days in college and high school and think about those very things. The times I didn't confess Christ. The times I didn't say the right thing. The times I didn't nudge my friends in the right way. Because I wanted to appear cool or wanted to appear in the know or whatever. And I think about that, especially as in regards to Nicodemus, because I think he felt the same thing. In the days after Golgotha, 
I think he remembered all those times. He was with some of the most elite people in the first century, and yet he never opened his mouth to confess Christ, except for when Christ was already dead. Of course, we know that Christ resurrected, and I think, again, I imagine that he was part of that crowd. He was part of those who were sent out. And many church traditions venerate Nicodemus as a saint, And I think we can learn from that history. Don't be a confidential Christian. One who keeps it to himself. Remember that kid's song? Hiding under a bushel, no, this little light of mine. Hiding under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. I don't know if you remember that song. I do. I'm not going to sing it because that was a terrible rendition. But regardless, the point remains. How are you living? Are you living in the shadows like Nicodemus? Are you serving Jesus but secretly? Or are you serving Jesus in the sunlight, we might say? Are you living in the boldness of grace or in the fear of rejection? Are you a confidential Christian or are you one who is confidently confessing him? I think for all of us, that is what Jesus desires. A people who confess Christ confidently and openly without fear of rejection, without fear of loss of reputation, but with boldness. As Paul says, for I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power unto salvation. May we all live so unashamedly. Let us pray.